Morning, Redeemer. How's it going? Good. Some of you, good. Um, so my name is Stanley, for those that don't know. I'm one of the elders uh, here, um, and um, I just wanted, we were, we, last week, uh, Steve kind of kicked us off in the sermon series, the ad, our Advent sermon series, and want to continue in that uh, while Shannon's kind of recuperating, um, he'll be back next week. And I always like to say, if you don't like what you hear today, come back next week. <laughs> Shannon will be here. Um, but uh, we're going to kind of uh, continue in that theme of um, Advent. And today I want to look at uh, Luke chapter 2, a portion of Luke chapter 2, and kind of uh, unpack some of the things that I uh, noticed in that passage and kind of the uh, thing that I want to uh, explore and kind of the things that we've been trying to explore here during Advent is kind of the significance of Jesus' birth or kind of the incarnation of God uh, and what that means for us as believers. Sometimes, um, you know, after a couple of Christmases, you're like, well, same story. The shepherds came, the angels said something, Mary, you know, went to the temple and I want my gifts, what am I getting for Christmas, right? We quickly get through those stages, and then we're back into New Year's resolution. So I think part of the Advent uh, sermon series is to kind of just pause, think, reflect, be grateful for, um, for the things that uh, we, we, are, uh, we should be grateful for during this season. So the passage we're going to look at today and kind of the theme that I want to explore today uh, is uh, captured in Luke chapter 2, and Luke records this in his um, in in his uh, the second chapter of his um, of his of the Gospel of Luke, uh, starting in uh, verse 22 and all the way through 38, it's it's kind of a middle portion. I, don't, I won't go through all of it in detail, but I just want to read through it just to kind of give you uh, a synopsis of what's going on. Now, the the theme that I want to explore uh, from this passage is this idea that through the incarnation of God, the law that Moses had given was dismissed. And grace was ushered in. That's kind of the theme that I want to look at is that when Jesus came, he not only just came to die for us, but he also ushered in this uh, new covenant uh, or this idea of grace. And because that was ushered in, law was dismissed. And that's kind of the theme that I want to explore in, uh, in Luke chapter 2 and what Luke records here uh, in, in verse 22 and down. You ready? All right, let's look at Luke chapter 22, excuse me, Luke 2. Um, and verse 22 and down. And it says, And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem and pres- to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from where, when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Excuse me, redemption of Jerusalem. So that's kind of where I want to stop and kind of explore um, a couple of things in this passage. So one of the things that you notice when you start reading Luke is Luke, there's so much packed into this just few verses that I just read. And Luke, because of his uh, attention to detail, uh, captures a lot of things that uh, some, maybe some of the other uh, gospel writers don't. And it's, you could spend hours and hours just unpacking all of the details that, and all kind of all the significance of all the details that he captures. But I want to point out a few things here that, um, that, I, thought, that I found interesting and kind of um, uh, goes along the theme that I just mentioned, which is the incarnation and looking at the incarnation and the significance of it in relation to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So just summarizing what happened, Mary and, Mary is, uh, and, and Joseph and Jesus um, show up at the temple, uh, and basically uh, it's required by, by the Jewish law that Mary has to go through this ceremonial cleaning, uh, uh, cleansing, I should say, that, um, that all women need to go after they give birth. And so it's about 40 days. That's kind of about the time frame. So Jesus is about 40 days old, and he's um, at the temple, and the first time that he's uh, in the temple. And um, Luke records uh, two encounters in this passage. Obviously, you know, when you're in the temple, you're encountering with multiple people, multiple priests, multiple prophetess, a uh, lot of moms and children, right? This is, not a, this is not an unusual sight. But Luke chooses to record two specific encounters that I want to explore today. And the first one is Simeon. And so uh, I want to compare those two interactions and kind of just bring out some of the nuances that I thought uh, was interesting in Luke's recording of these two, uh, uh, two, uh, these two encounters. So Simeon uh, is the first person we see, and we see him uh, being described in verse 25. And in verse 25, it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the constellation of Israel. So a couple of things there about Simeon that we noticed there. Uh, in how he's described by Luke, uh, commentators think he was probably a priest, but not in his priestly rounds. It's kind of what Steve had mentioned a little bit last week. Um, so, but the way he's described here gives us the sense that he was probably a priest. And one of the interesting things about him is that he was, uh, Luke records that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, right? Um, now, it might not seem... Um, might not seem uh, not seem to stand out to you, but what's interesting, you have to remember, it's been about 400 to 500 years since God uh, spoke to uh, Israel since Malachi, uh, since the end of Malachi. And so it's been about that long, and so um, the Jewish people had now kind of settled into a, uh, into a life that's uh, kind of religious, that involved the temple life and priests and sacrifices, and they kind of kept been doing this for 400 years. So for somebody to be uh, specifically called out to be said that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, it gives us the sense that he was eager and kind of anxious to see this Messiah come that was promised to him, uh, uh, promised to promised to the Israel through um, through the Old Testament, and so it's interesting to see that he, this was kind of something that was unique and distinct about him. Now, uh, one of the things that we notice about uh, we, we we kind of pay attention if we uh, real, if we pay attention is that the priests in the temple, just to give a little bit of background, they were, they were kind of the mediators between God and the people of Israel, right? They uh, God. Um, 
the people could not approach God directly. And so uh, God put this whole uh, law in place, all these uh, rituals in place and, and sacrifices in place. And this is how the people were supposed to approach God. It wasn't show up in church, pray, you know, that, that kind of thing. It was like, go to the priest. The priest will tell you what to do. Do according to the, what the priest says. And this is what's expected of you. And so it was a Simeon in my mind as we kind of read through this passage and kind of being the representative uh, priest in this temple, I think it's a representation for us. And one of the reasons why Luke records about him is because he's a picture of what the old covenant looked like. Simeon is a picture of what the old covenant looked like uh, according to Luke. And uh, we'll, we'll look at wh- what some of the clues that uh, Luke gives us in this passage too uh, that, brings up that, um, uh, that brings up that point. And so uh, in verse 26, Luke records that it was revealed to him, the Holy Spirit revealed him that um, he will see the Messiah before he dies. Um, and, um, and basically when the parents showed up at the temple, Simeon is in, uh, Holy Spirit indicates to Simeon that the parents are there. He shows up at the temple and we pick up the passage in verse 28. Um, verse 28, he says, he took him up in, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, which by the way, it's interesting because it gives me the sense that he just showed up and just grabbed the baby, which uh, probably not what happened. Or maybe it was okay back then. But if you don't take anything away from this uh, sermon today, that's not, that's a no-no, okay? So especially after being, uh, being a dad, a uh, recent dad, um, we get a lot of uh, comments on the baby. Um, and, you know, most of them are awesome and good and grateful, but it always seems to come out of nowhere. But um, as a side note, nothing to do with the sermon. But the, uh, he, so Simeon shows up, grabs, uh, took, him, took the baby in his arms and blessed God and kind of goes through this prayer that I want to look at. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people in Israel. So a couple of things that are interesting in Simeon's prayer, and I won't go through the whole thing. I just want to point out three things in this, past, in this specific prayer. First is how he addresses God. He, uh, the word that he uses there for Lord, uh, in its raw translation, translates to despot or dictator, right? It's, about the, it's only used in the New Testament about four to five times. So unlike the typical translation of Lord, which might be Yahweh or Master, this specific uh, word uh, that's used here by Simeon indicates that he sees God as more of a master, ruler, and a despot, right? Not in a bad way, but in a way that's, that uh, gives God total uh, authority over himself, okay? The second thing that's interesting here that we notice here is how he addresses how he sees himself in relation to God. He calls himself, Lord, now you're letting your servant. And the word servant there, again, it's probably a better translated as slave or bond servant, which is probably more, more like it. And basically that is more of an indication of total submission, right? One, of total authority, that's how he addresses God. And second, he, he sees himself as uh, as a slave or a bond servant. And that relationship is interesting because uh, that is kind of how the old covenant functioned, right? In the old covenant, uh, that was, in the law that was given through Moses, uh, people, were, people could not approach God as a father or as they were his children, even though they were called children of God. Uh, they, they had to approach God through all these uh, rituals and ceremonies, whether it's the sacrifices in the temple, through the priests, etc. And the, the priests were the mediator in that, uh, in that respect. So uh, basically he's, uh, he's seeing himself or he's, he's portraying himself as a servant or a slave to God. 
And that's an interesting uh, dynamic that as we look at the rest of this passage and kind of how that translates into the new covenant. The second thing we notice here is how he, the kind of the prayer that he prays. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That's what the ESV says. The, the NIV almost gives you the tone that he's asking to be dismissed. But the ESV's translation, I think it's probably a uh, better translation of that passage. It's basically the word that he's, he's recognizing that he's being dismissed. You see the difference there? He's not asking to be dismissed. God's like, okay, God, um, the Messiah is here. Let me go kind of thing. No, he's, he's recognizing now that the Messiah is here, his role as a priest is coming to an end. His role as a priest, which is kind of this image of this old covenant, it's like the Messiah is here, and hence my role as a priest and kind of this old covenant that I represent is coming to an end. That's an interesting, interesting, uh, uh, interesting nuance there. The, the word, again, that letting your servant depart in peace uh, essentially technically translates into relieving a soldier from his post or a uh, watchmen from his watchtower. And I think Shannon's kind of touched on this before. The watchmen were essentially people that were uh, up on a watchtower watching uh, at night, making sure they, nobody was attacking their, the city. And so that's kind of the picture that uh, Simeon is painting here f- about himself. He's been watching for this Messiah to come. Now that the Messiah has come, he's been dismissed. And one of the things that kind of uh, brings out there, if I were to summarize, is that when Jesus arrives in the temple, the law was dismissed. When Jesus arrives at the temple, we get the sense that the law was dismissed. That's the first interaction that we read about here in this passage. The second interaction that we read here in this passage is uh, Anna. And Anna shows up in uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. And Anna's interaction is uh, distinctly different from Simeon's, though Anna is described very similar to uh, Simeon. She's described as um, uh, kind of somebody that's righteous, that is faithful to God, that's obedient, uh, somebody who's uh, spends a lot of time with God. Um, and there's all these things about a widow and how she was, uh, um, you know, faithful in her marriage, you know, all basically describing that she was a righteous person. I want to pick up in verse 38 uh, on, what, uh, on uh, Anna's interaction uh, in this passage. And so Anna, Anna on the other, uh, in verse 30, it says, And coming up at that very hour, Again, I don't like the translation. I like what the NIV says. It's coming up to them is what the NIV says. But we didn't have NIV, so you have the ESV up here. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Of, excuse me, for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anybody know what Anna's name means? Anna means grace. Right? So we see this picture that Luke is painting for us here. Um, Jesus shows up at the temple Simeon, who is a representation of the Old Covenant, sees, him, sees it as a dismissal to himself. Anna, Anna, on the other hand, whose name is Grace, comes up to them, and her response is one of what? Joy, gratefulness, rejoicing. She says that give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's almost like she was starting to evangelize. Right? Jesus he not, he had not even died. Or he was just 40 days old. But Anna seems to recognize that this Messiah means something big for Jerusalem, for the people of Israel, but also for the Gentiles at large. And so uh, with regards to Anna, we see that when grace arrived, oh, excuse me, when Jesus arrives, that grace is rejoicing. With Simeon, we see that the law being dismissed, and with Anna, we see grace, when, uh, grace rejoicing at the arrival of Jesus. And two, 
contrasting positions that we see uh, in this passage as Luke records uh, the two interactions that the parents had at the temple. Okay, so that kind of sets up what I, was, uh, what, I was, what I wanted to spend the rest of the time here talking about, and that is this idea of what does it mean for this new covenant to come over? What does it mean for the law to be dismissed, and how does that all that uh, mean? What does that mean for us as we think about the incarnation of Jesus and as we kind of go through this Christmas season, and how does that apply to us today, right? Now, the law and grace are themes that run through all the scripture, and I was kind of like talking to Shana about this too as we think about it. So I will have, just to kind of look at some of the passages, I'm going to have to jump a little bit around, but I hopefully it won't be, uh, it won't be too confusing. But I, I'm hoping to kind of point out certain aspects through, through the New Testament that these themes are weaved around. And so I think Paul talks a lot about this theme, and I want to kind of just capture a little bit about, the, about what he says about this. So kind of the, the thing that we're, we're kind of wanting to look at is uh, we see that Jesus shows up at the temple as a baby. The law is dismissed and grace has now arrived. What does that look like for us now as believers? And so Paul captures this idea in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 7. And so he says, uh, but just a little bit of context, in, in Galatians, as Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, he's basically addressing a similar tension. He's addressing the tension about people wanting to feel righteous by the law and, instead of, uh, and dismissing grace. So kind of the opposite of why the new covenant came. And so as we look at that idea, Paul talks about in verse 4, writes, in chapter 4, and verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So now, so now you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you catch that? What Paul is saying here is, unlike Simeon, who saw himself as a slave to his master, Paul, Paul is saying here, under the new covenant, you are adopted as sons and daughters, as children of God to, God, uh, to the Father. That is now the relationship. And that is mind-blowing in a lot of ways, because you are now, you were once a servant or the slave, basically absolutely no freedom, and you move into sons of God, or daughters of God, or children of God. Right? At one point, you have absolutely no freedom, and, um, and the next, at the, and it kind of under the, under the new covenant, you're basically brothers and sisters of Jesus. Essentially, that's what God's saying here. In Colossians, Colossians Paul captures this idea of you are now co-heirs with Christ. Basically means whatever inheritance Jesus has, we get to share in that. And that's basically the, uh, the essence that Paul is capturing here, that uh, the incarnation put an end to the old covenant, and gave us access to a new covenant under which we are now not just slaves to God, but we're now sons and daughters and have been adopted into his family. And that is kind of the essence that uh, uh, the incarnation brings out as we look at it and think about it uh, in this passage. Now, uh, John uh, kind of phrases this, basically captures the same thing in, his, uh, in the prologue to his gospel in John 1.17. Uh, Brian read a uh, portion of John 1 today in, in during worship, but the, in verse 17 it says, uh, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John is saying here is that Jesus was grace personified. 
it was not just something that he brought with him, but he was it. He was the essence of it. And so uh, as, we, as we look at that uh, concept of Jesus being this uh, bringing grace in himself, what does that mean for us? And why did, uh, I was kind of talking to Lindsay about this as I was kind of preparing. He was like, so w- uh, what are some questions that you, if I were to say this to you, that you, uh, you would have in one of the questions she asked? Like, so, well, if grace was the ultimate goal, why, did, why was the law given? What was the point of the law? Now, that is a huge question, and we won't have time to unpack all of it, but I just want to mention one aspect of it, um, so you get the question, but not the answer. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's one, of the, uh, one of the key aspects of God's, uh, one of the big themes that God uh, reveals to us through his scripture, and that is, the highest virtue in God's eyes is love. And so God's ultimate aim uh, through all of scripture, through all of human history, is to build, uh, uh, to create a loving community of loving persons. At, and the, the, Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite authors, kind of captures it this way. The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons, with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Right? And so the law was also given for this purpose, believe it or not. Right? Even though it was a master-slave relationship, the law was given to create, uh, was, to give, was, was cr- uh, given for this purpose, to create loving people. That's a little confusing, right? But let's just look at, look at a couple of things. When you think about the uh, uh, Ten Commandments, for example, right, uh, that, mo- that was given through Moses on a tablet, tablets of stone, uh, and he, he kind of uh, basically uh, addresses this uh, idea. So the main thing, when you think about the, uh, the Ten Commandments, for example, right? Thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder. What the law aimed to do through those commandments, through the ceremonial law, was to create loving persons by asking them to stop doing unloving things. Right? So for example, why, is murder, why was mur- thou shall not murder on the Ten Commandments? Because it's not a loving thing to do. Right? <laughs> It's not a loving thing to, to kill people. Uh, it's not a loving thing to steal. It's not a loving thing to covet your neighbor's stuff and his uh, wife or whatever the case may be. It's not a loving thing to do. So, but but when, Jesus, when God had to reveal this to the children of Israel, remember where they were. They were slaves in Egypt, had no connection to their uh, forefathers, which is Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. They, he didn't, they didn't have any kind of concept of who God was. Right? And so God had to formalize a relationship with them. And so he gives, them these lo- he gives them these laws and says, do not do these things. And this essentially was, the aim of it was to um, love God and love people by not doing things that are unloving to God and unloving to man. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because that is not a loving thing to, for Yahweh. So he basically asked them not to do it. And so the law aimed, again, to create loving persons by asking them to stop doing things uh, that were unloving to, neighbor, uh, to God and neighbor. Now, uh, you, can, you can see how that is a temporary uh, project, right? It's essentially what we would tell our kids, for example, right? We don't explain to them, we say, say thank you, uh, say please. We don't explain all the nuances of why that's all important, but it just says, just do this. Right? Essentially, that's how Paul portrays the purpose of the law in, in Scripture. But grace, on the other hand, does something, goes beyond that. And that's essentially why Jesus had to come as a baby and die on the cross uh, for us. And it's because grace aims for soul transformation and not just behavior modification. 
Grace wants to move from don't do bad things to transform us into, the, into beings that are loving, that would naturally do loving things, right? And that's kind of the key essence that uh, the, the grace tries to uh, capture for us because uh, we want to move beyond behavior, modifications, excuse me, behavior modifications and move to a soul transformation. And that's essentially what grace addresses to do. Now, um, when we think about uh, this idea, this is what uh, the incarnation kind of captures for us in its essence, is the dismissal of the law because it did not do what it was uh, aimed, aiming to do, uh, and bringing in grace because the time was now right so that we would become the kind of people that are loving. And so when grace arrived in Jesus, the law was dismissed. Okay, so what does that mean for us? What are some of the implications and applications of grace coming or for this new covenant coming? Well, one, uh, we looked at briefly, but I want to go back to it, is this idea that we're now adopted as sons and daughters uh, and we have a family now, right? So look around you, right? We're in family, right? For, the, for those that uh, buy Christmas gifts for every member in your family, you're like, that's a lot of Christmas gifts, right? <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I still take Christmas gifts, so if you want to send me a Christmas gift, let me know, and I'll give you my address, or I take Amazon gift cards too. But in, in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul addresses this idea of us being part, adopted into this family. And he says in verse 23 of chapter 3 of Galatians, says, Now when, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That is the dynamic that Simeon has with God, the idea of being captive under the law. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. And then further down in Galatians 4, chapter 4, verse 7, is kind of the passage that I read. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so this is this idea, as we think about this Christmas season, right? This idea that we are no longer just orphans or slaves to God, but that we are sons and daughters and this, and this uh, concept of being children uh, with God. And I think one of the things that we do wrestle with this, uh, in this season and that a lot of people wrestle with is, in the busyness of life, or in the busyness of the season, whether it's just family gatherings or missing family members because of death or um, gifts and cooking and travel plans, etc., we sometimes forget that uh, we, there are lots of folks among us that don't have that sense of family, whether it's blood, I mean, a blood-related family. So one of the things that as we kind of go through the season that I want to encourage us is to look around us and think of those people that don't have that immediate family. That How do we welcome them into our family? Because ultimately, in Christ, we are, actually, we are all brothers and sisters, right? How do we kind of uh, live, that out, live that truth out in the season by essentially inviting other people into those uh, into those moments where we have our own families, but they don't. And how do we invite them into that? It's something I want us to kind of think about because now, under this new covenant, with the birth of Jesus, we are now adopted as sons and daughters into this family. The second implication of this truth is that God has now come to dwell with us and in us. 
right? And this is kind of uh, the passage that we, uh, we looked at in John 1. Um, and in John 1, basically John writes, again, this is the passage uh, I kind of uh, alluded to. It says in John 1 and verse 14, it says, When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen His glory, glorious, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to skip to verse 16. And for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, in the midst of all the craziness, I was, sh- I was sharing with the volunteers at the volunteer uh, service um, a few weeks back. I think one of the things that I've been wrestling with is through the, through the season of uh, life with the new baby and kind of work being uh, busy and looking for a house and kind of just everything that's going on in our lives, this idea of um, I've been wrestling with learning to abide in Christ, just learning to realize that God dwells uh, with me and in me. Because one of the things that I think we miss, and this is kind of what I'm tempted to do all, a lot of times, is God, next week, I'll pay more attention to you, right? Next, after this next project, you know, after this next diaper change or after this next uh, holiday season or, or after this next Thanksgiving dinner, we always seem to postpone this idea of recognizing that God is with us and he dwells among us. Uh, John, uh, again, John's prologue to his gospel is uh, packed again with a lot of different um, images here. But one of these, this image of God dwelling with us is basically translated into as God, Jesus coming in person and pitching his tent with us. He coming, he's coming to dwell as if he was one of us, right? And that is, a, this, that is this idea of God, uh, very different from the old covenant where God was far off, but now he is one among us. He has come and to be present with us. And so God, the reason God did that was because he wants to be present in our current circumstances, exactly where we are today, not after this project or the next week or this uh, next uh, holiday, but he wants to be with us today and right now. I think this is one of the things that um, I want us to encourage you guys is we are in the middle of, again, travel plans, cooking, Christmas uh, gifts and shopping and etc. and all the craziness that goes on with the seasons. First, you just stop and recognize that Jesus now dwells among us. He dwells in us and he wants to be present in this specific season of your life. Not in some perfect season, uh, you know, uh, since Jan- after January rolls around, but right now, in this moment. Uh, that's kind of what, I wanted, what I've been wrestling with personally as I've been thinking about and after I even uh, uh, did the devotional a few weeks back, I still kind of came back to that this week as I was kind of thinking about this passage and kind of meditating on what does that mean for God to dwell with us, for us to recognize and live in that truth Right Now that our recognition does not come with the number of gifts, with how many lights we have, whether the tree's up or the tree's not up, or the size of the gifts or the approval of the gifts. Right? Lots of different metrics for us to be measured by. But what if we just put all that away and said, what if I just found my recognition and my approval in the fact that God now dwells in me and with us? That's all I had for you guys. So let me pray for us. And we'll have Brian and uh, the band come, uh, come lead us in worship. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this time. As we kind of recognize this, uh, this truth of your birth. Um, lots of um, images around it. Some sad, some happy, some joyful. 
But sometimes we forget that you actually came. You were God. And you put all of that away to come be a baby in a manger. Help us, Father, as we kind of go through this season, next few weeks of craziness, that we remember and we are reminded of the significance of your birth in, in our lives as believers. That we have moved from slaves to sons and that, we, that gives us a reason to rejoice and be grateful and be glad, be thankful. Let other people know about this joy. Help us as we kind of recognize um, our status as sons and daughters, as people that are part of the family, that we will uh, treat each other like that. That we will treat each other as brothers and sisters. That we will invite people that, that don't look like us, talk like us, that we will invite them into our own homes as family because we recognize that you are the great barrier breaker and that through your blood, you have brought all of us together. We pray for the folks that have lost family members that don't have family, that you will comfort them, that you will be close to their hearts during the season. And that even as we kind of go through the season, that we will not be uh, affected or infected by the uh, anxiousness and the busyness of this of uh, this season, but that we will learn to dwell uh, with you and recognize that you dwell in us. Because as Luke records, the one who was to replace the temple showed up in the temple in humility. We pray that, uh, that the words that were spoken today will be uh, one that gives life, that will bear fruit, that will go forth that it will accomplish what you had in mind. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.